invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the book of Revelation. If you're visiting with us or haven't been with us in a few weeks, we've been trekking through this uh, important book of God's Word, the book of Revelation. And today we come to chapter 11. If you're uh, using a pew Bible, and certainly would encourage you to use a Bible, um, uh, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find this text on page 997. But last week we were in uh, Revelation chapter 10, the chapter just prior to this one. And from that text, uh, our text reminded us that God calls us to trust His Word and to proclaim His salvation. Uh, we were uh, instructed, we were reminded that God is sovereign, that His Word is sufficient, that His Word is authoritative, that His Word is certain, that it's for our consumption, and it's meant to be proclaimed by those who know and walk uh, with the Lord. And so remember in that text, we, uh, we, we read about this vision where this angel had this uh, little scroll and, and John is in, instructed to take the scroll from the angel to eat the scroll, symbolizing eating God's word, receiving God's revelation, taking it in, taking it to heart, and then commissioned to go and prophesy again to proclaim the truth about who God is. In other words, uh, God's word is for our good. We need it. It is good. Uh, When we consume it, we're prepared and then we're propelled to share its content with the rest of the world. And so to that task of witnessing, that task of sharing, we now turn. The scriptures now turn. But before we do, before we read our text for this morning, uh, I sense the need to give uh, maybe some pastoral remarks on this particular text and uh, on reading Revelation as a whole. I was thinking about this this week, and you know, sometimes it's good to commit yourself to something before you really begin to think through it. Uh, Other times it's good to really sort of survey the landscape and consider your options before you make a commitment. Well, uh, here we are. Uh, I've made a commitment to preach through Revelation. Uh, And preaching and teaching or even reading and interpreting or applying uh, this portion, this book of Uh, God's Word proves challenging, quite challenging for this reason. Faithful believers, faithful followers of Jesus Christ disagree over the details of this particular book more than any other portion of Scripture. Now, notice what I said, though. Hear what I said. The details, not the message. The details of the text. In fact, the central message and the overarching truths are clear. And so that is where we must major. And if we could simply stay in that realm and stay out of the debate over the particulars, we would do so. And when we can, we will. But that being said, I cannot read or teach or preach from our text for today without pressing into some of those details. And as I do, you may hear me uh, express an interpretation different from what you've heard before. And I don't say that to unsettle anyone, but simply to be honest with you. We need humility and submission to the Word of God. And part of humility and submission here is honestly recognizing differences in interpretation. And so here's what I mean. And this might be, this is all sort of introductory today. This might be more than you paid for, more than you bargained for this morning. So bear with me for just a moment. But a number of approaches have been uh, proposed for reading this portion of God's Word, for reading Revelation. Uh, but most today fall into two main camps. Uh, on one, one camp, you have a, a fairly literal, futuristic reading of the book that emphasizes a clear sequence of events in a particular order leading up to the return of Christ. 
Another approach to Revelation is a more symbolic reading of the book that emphasizes the ongoing tension between Christ and his followers and Satan and unbelievers throughout the church age prior to the return of Christ. And then some folks sort of uh, dabble somewhere in between. In other words, one is a bit more linear and one is a bit more cyclical, but both end up in the same place. So unlike some other issues, when it comes to these issues and our sort of approach to this book, we're not talking about uh, conservative versus liberal theology or interpretive uh, keys. We're not talking about heresy versus orthodoxy. Uh, Both positions, advocates of both approaches and those that sort of come in between, submit to the authority of God's word. And I cannot emphasize that enough. And so whichever uh, camp you gravitate toward, maybe you, you already sort of land somewhere on this. If you've really studied these things, maybe, maybe you've never even considered these things. Maybe you will today and in the coming weeks. But wherever you land, uh, there needs to be great room for grace and understanding with those who disagree. Here's the key. As long as we're both coming, as long as we're coming from uh, a position and posture of submission to the Word of God. We want to hear from the Lord. We want Him to instruct us. His Word is good. It is authoritative. It is certain. It is for our consumption. It is for proclamation. So we want to bow before Him. We want to open His Word with humble hearts. We want Him to speak to us. But all that to say, when it comes to interpreting this portion of the Scriptures, the difference primarily lies in how interpreters view the genre of revelation itself. That's really what it comes down to. And so what I hope to show today uh, is that however we interpret the particulars of our text, the central message and its application for us are the same. Alistair Begg often says, a famous preacher, Scottish preacher up in Ohio, he says, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And so as we read a text that's got a lot of particulars, we want to come away with the big picture. We want to come away with the central message. We want to cling to the main things, the things that unite us and the things that we're called to take to heart and apply to our lives as God's people. So let's do that together this morning. All that to say, let's, let's read God's word. Let's hear from the Lord. Let's be led by him. So as you find your place in Revelation chapter 11, let me invite you to join me standing, uh, whether in body or spirit, uh, for the reading of God's word. Let's hear from the Lord today. John writes, he says, Revelation 11, verse 1, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. 
For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a voice, a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. The third woe was coming soon. Verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we need you this morning. And we thank you that you're with us. Your word promises that your spirit resides in your people. And so, Father, we know that you are here. We have gathered in your name, the name of the one and only God, who is Father, Spirit, and Son. Father, speak to us. Correct us, clarify, convict, challenge us, propel us to cling to your word and to proclaim your gospel in a way that glorifies your name. So, Lord, speak to us now. The proclamation of your word, it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so here, uh, here we go. I, I'm convinced that this text functions like a parable. And when I say that, I don't mean a hypothetical situation. I mean a real situation described in parabolic language. And so like the story that the prophet Nathan tells to David after King David has committed gross sin to convict him of his sin. Remember that story. Remember the King David, who covets another man's wife. He takes Bathsheba as his own, commits adultery with her, and then he gets rid of her husband in an attempt to cover up his sin. Well, sometime later, the prophet Nathan, sent by the Lord, comes to King David and begins to describe a situation to him. The prophet Nathan says to David, there were two men who lived in a certain town. There was a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had all kinds of things. He had all kinds of livestock. He had cattle and sheep. Uh, more than he needed. There was a poor man who had a little ewe lamb that he loved dearly, that he purchased on his own. He fed from his table, that drank from his cup, that slept in his arm. He treated it like his own daughter. Somebody came, a guest came to visit the rich man, and the rich man, rather than taking one of his own, own livestock to feed his guests, he took the ewe lamb from the poor man. And David, here's the story that Nathan is telling, and David is outraged. Remember that? He is angry, ready to go find that man. And then Nathan drops a bombshell on him. He says, you 
are that man. David begins to realize his own sin and begins to confess his sin. Church, in a similar way, I, I think Revelation uses symbolic language and images to describe the ongoing spiritual battle between Christ and his people and Satan and those who act like his. Now, we don't have to. I'm not going to fight over that. There's differences in interpretation here between uh, some camps and others as long as we're submitting to the word of God. But wherever we land on these things, however we determine and interpret the particulars of God's word, this chapter, no doubt, is about evangelism. It is about witnessing to the world with the truth of the gospel. In fact, the whole book of Revelation is. It's witnessing to the world by sharing the truth of the gospel until Christ's kingdom comes. And I think what we find here is a spiritual depiction of the church's witness. The church's witness here and now serving as a paradigm for continued faithfulness to Christ and proclamation of the gospel. And following that perspective, I take the temple of God in verse 1 and two witnesses in verse 3 to represent the church. This certainly would not be the first time that the New Testament speaks of uh, God's people as a temple. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and following, he says, Consequently, you Gentiles... You Gentiles are no longer foreigners and strangers. You're no longer outsiders, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household built on the foundation. Hear the building language here. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. He says in him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. In the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Other similar references in the New Testament. There's a couple words in the New Testament, a couple uh, Greek words that refer to, uh, refer to the temple. Uh, sometimes it's clear that it's referring to a building, a structure. Other times it's referring to the people of God. But the word that's used to, here in, in Ephesians 2 and 1 Corinthians 3 and elsewhere to refer to the people of God, described in this way, is the same word that John uses in Revelation. And furthermore, I think we have an interpretive key here in the phrase in verse 1, with its worshipers. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. See, identifying God's people as God's temple became the common Christian custom after Jesus, our great high priest, and the ultimate sacrifice abolished our need for approaching God through a priestly and sacrificial system. So if the temple here is the people of God, then the outer court or the area of the Gentiles represents unbelievers, spiritual Gentiles, meaning the rest of the world. So the main point then of verses 1 and 2 is this, that God knows and protects His people. God knows and protects His people. To, to measure God's people is to mark them. It is to recognize who they are. It is to seal them, to set them apart, to distinguish them from the rest of the world. If you've ever been uh, to Chuck E. Cheese, then you know what I'm talking about. Because you go in and you get a little stamp, an invisible stamp on your hand. Same stamp that's on your child's hand. Only illumined by special uh, little light. And and this is meant to ensure uh, that you take your child and only your child. This is a protection for for children. Likewise, measure the temple is to demarcate between children of God and children of the world. To delineate between those who are gods and those who are not. Despite worldly opposition, 
It often results in suffering for God's children. He protects His children from any ultimate harm. Words of Doug Webster, to, to measure is to draw a line, to set a boundary and seal a membership. To identify true worshipers is to, deter, is to determine who is in and who is out. You see, the gospel that we believe, the gospel that the scriptures are clear on, the gospel that we receive and proclaim is as exclusive as it is inclusive. It's inclusive in the sense that it is for whosoever will repent and believe. People from every nation, tribe, people, and language. But it's exclusive in the sense that it is only good news for those who repent and believe. A message of eternal protection and salvation for those who receive Jesus and a message of judgment for those who reject Him. God knows and protects His people. And we also see here that God protects His people as they proclaim the gospel by the Spirit's power. God protects His people as they proclaim the gospel by the Spirit's power. When I thought of that truth, uh, sorry, but I, I thought of Super Mario World and the star. If you've ever played Super Mario World, you get a star. It protects you from the enemy. It protects you from the turtle shells and all those other things for just a few seconds. Not for long, just for the predetermined period of time. Likewise, God protects His people. He protects His people. He marks and He protects His people as they proclaim the gospel, as they're used by Him, by the Spirit's power for a predetermined period of time that only He knows. That's the message behind the portrait of the two witnesses. There is a war going on depicted as a battle. A battle between two cities, the city of God and the city of the world. According to this text, the city of the world appears to be winning for a time, for 42 months. And the witnesses are described as prophesying for the same amount of time, 1,260 days. And at the end of that time, a beast descends from a pit and kills the witnesses, leaves their bodies exposed, and the world rejoices. Three and a half days later, God's breath enters into them. They come to life and they ascend to heaven. An earthquake ensues. Many of the wicked die and others see God's hand at work here and they turn and glorify God. This is a wild drama. This is a wild story. Not a story that you make up. The key to understanding this, this drama is that John alludes to numerous, numerous, numerous Old Testament passages here. So we're going to dive into that very briefly. If you like to take notes, there'll be a lot of Scripture references to write down. Some of these will be on the screen, but not all of them this morning. But two witnesses are the minimum required by the Mosaic Law to convict the guilty. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Setting this, this up is a courtroom scene. The witnesses prophesy or proclaim the truth for the same length of time that Daniel said that God's enemies would oppress God's people. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. In describing them as two olive trees and two lampstands, John recalls a vision of Zechariah. Zechariah's vision in Zechariah chapter 4 uh, of a lampstand with two olive trees, one on each side, that are supplying it with oil. During that day, during Zechariah's day, this was a word of encouragement. It was a word of instruction and encouragement to two human agents, Joshua, who was the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who was a prince, uh, who was served, functioned as a governor as the exiles returned back to the land. This was a word of encouragement to rebuild God's temple after Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had come in and destroyed uh, the temple in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. It was a message declaring that despite opposition, despite opposition, God's spirit, the oil, would enable them to rebuild the temple, the lampstand. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 captures this. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, 
nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, as you face opposition, as you try to remain faithful to the task and complete this task that you've been assigned to, you're not going to do so by might and power. You're going to do so by relying on my spirit. The power of John's witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, recall God's power against the wicked through Moses and Elijah. Remember the story of Elijah. Elijah called down fire from heaven as a sign of Yahweh's authority and superiority over false gods. We read about that in 1 Kings chapter 18 as well as 2 Kings chapter 1. And likewise, Elijah through his ministry predicted and prayed for drought as well as rain. The fire of the two witnesses is not a literal fire, but it's like the fire described in Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire. And these people, the wood it consumes. So here's the point. The power of the witnesses is in the word they proclaim. The power of the witnesses, the power of God's witnesses, the power of His representatives, the power of those who represent Him and proclaim His truth and share His truth is in the word they proclaim the church's witness goes forth in power. It goes forth in power like Elijah because it contains the word of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword in his mouth. Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. And the church's message is like that of Moses with the plagues. Verse 6. For as the judgments of the plagues delivered Israel from slavery, so the church declares a message of deliverance from slavery, a message of freedom and liberation from sins through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Like the ministries of Moses and Elijah, the message of the church invites opposition. See, God's people will face opposition for the gospel. God's people will face opposition for the gospel. We know this. The New Testament makes much of this. Jesus told his followers in John chapter 15, he said, Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. See, God protects his people as they proclaim the gospel by the Spirit's power. But that biblical truth doesn't eliminate all opposition. It's not a promise that we won't face opposition. It's not a promise that we won't face suffering. But it's a promise that God is sovereign and that he is with his people. The words of Lottie Moon, one of our Baptist heroes, longtime missionary to China. She said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. A firm conviction. I am immortal. The Lord is protecting me. I am immortal until my work is done. Brother, sister, you are immortal until God says your work here is done. So let's not be bashful. Let's be ambitious. Let's be dedicated. Let's be serious about being salt and light. Let's be faithful witnesses knowing that as we are, we can expect opposition for faithful proclamation. But even so, we can know that we are safe and secure here until the sovereign king says to us, come home. Come enter the rest of my presence. The Old Testament allusions here in this text continue. John's mention of the beast and Verse 7 recalls Daniel's fourth beast of his vision in Daniel chapter 7. Likely, in the short term, a a reference to uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, an 
infamous persecutor of the Jews in the Roman Empire. And John borrows uh, this image now to describe the totalitarian regime of Domitian under whom he now lives. Seeing both of these as examples of the intensification of wickedness that will characterize the world just prior to the judgment, the final judgment of the wicked. And so the beast, representing wicked world rulers, successfully eliminates faithful gospel witnesses in Jerusalem or Sodom or Egypt or any other world city judged by God as a place from which our Lord's people were saved through judgment. That's what those three cities have in common. The wicked wage war for a time and appear to win, even gloating over their forceful suppression of the truth. Yet, God will vindicate His people. God will vindicate, resurrect, and use His people. That's a promise from His Word. God will vindicate, resurrect, and use His people. In language reminiscent of Ezekiel's valley of dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, John writes in verse 11, he says, But after... Three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. You see, whereas Ezekiel describes God's people being restored and resurrected by the breath of God into a vast army, so John now describes the oppressed, opposed, persecuted, even martyred people of God, restored to life and resurrected and entering God's presence. And in the wake of that resurrection power at work among his people, many believers will face his judgment while others will see his hand at work and turn to him in faith. Verse 13. God will vindicate, he will resurrect, and he will use his people. He will use them until his kingdom comes. God will use his people until his kingdom comes. Our text closes, verses 15 through 19, with, I think, its central truth, its central message. It closes right here in the middle of Revelation with the book's overarching central truth. Another picture of heaven shouting that God's kingdom will come. His people will join Him and He will reign forever and ever. For God's people, God's God's kingdom will come. God's kingdom will come. His people will join Him and He will reign forever and ever. God's kingdom will come. His people will join Him and He will reign forever and ever. Don't miss that truth. That is the central message of this text. That is the central message, I think, of Revelation as a whole. Let's, let's say it together. We're, we're down in the weeds. We, we need some big picture truth that we can hang our hat on here. So let's say that again. Say that with me. God's kingdom will come. His people will join Him and He will reign forever and ever. Say it again. God's kingdom will come. His people will join Him and He will reign forever and ever. He will. God's kingdom will come. His people are going to join Him. We're going to be a part of it. And He is going to reign forever and ever and ever. You see, regardless of how we interpret the identity of the, of the temple in verse 2, and regardless of how we interpret the, the witnesses, the particulars of the witnesses in verse 4, this is where we must land. Either way, we come here. His kingdom will come. His people will join him, and he will reign forever and ever. The two faithful witnesses described in this chapter, in this text, are at least paradigmatic for the church. Either providing a direct model or a role model for us until Christ's kingdom comes. God's kingdom will come, his people will join him, and we will reign. He will reign uh, forever and ever. Let me ask you this morning, are you one of his people? Are you a child of the Most High God? Do you belong to him? Does he claim you as his own? 
Has He sealed you? The Bible teaches that you can know that you are His. You, you can become, if you know what, you can become one of His today by repenting of your sin, by repenting of a life lived without regard for Him and trusting in Jesus for salvation. You can know that you belong to God. You can know that you are forgiven. Do you belong to God? Are you forgiven? But if you're not trusting Jesus in His work on the cross on your behalf, then turn from a life without Him and trust in Him today. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. And brother, sister, once you know that you are His, once you know that you are saved, once you know that you are forgiven of your sins, then delight in being one of His people. Delight in being one of God's people. Find joy and satisfaction in knowing that you are His for Christian. You are no longer a foreigner or stranger, but you are a fellow citizen with God's people and a member of His household. Find your identity, your worth, your value, your purpose, your significance, and knowing God claims you as His own and will one day take you to be where He is, a place of no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and no more tears. Delight in knowing that the high king of heaven claims you and saves you and will restore you and provide for you. He will give you himself. Friend, to apply this text, we must delight in being one of God's people and we must ask God for a kingdom perspective. Ask God for kingdom perspective. See, believers living in a wicked world need a kingdom of God perspective. We need a kingdom of God perspective. We need an eternal perspective. We need a heavenly perspective that recognizes that this world is not our home. That we are in temporary housing awaiting our forever home. We need a kingdom of God perspective. We live here and we wait, but we don't just wait. We witness. We witness as we wait. We tell the world of God's saving grace for whosoever will repent and believe. A message that often results in opposition, but a message that when taken to heart sets us free. John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When you know the truth, the truth set you free. When it comes to these things, when it comes to God's kingdom, when it comes to the person, work, and ministry of Christ, when it comes to sin and salvation, ignorance is not bliss. We need to know the truth. We need to act on the truth. We need a kingdom of God perspective. A kingdom perspective provides freedom from sin and freedom from guilt and freedom from self-effort. For as we wait and as we witness, we do so in the power of the one who worked wonders through Moses. And in the power of the one who brought fire from heaven through Elijah. And in the power of the one who raised a vast army of dried bones to life. And in the power of one who raised Jesus from the dead. As we witness, we depend on that Spirit's power. So depend on the Spirit's power. Depend on the Spirit's power to live for the Lord. Believers, share the gospel. Share the gospel. Share the truth. Knowing that you're going to face opposition, knowing that you're going to face rejection, share the truth no matter the cost. Share the gospel and follow the example of those who have gone before us. Let's follow the example of Paul who said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Romans chapter 1, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. Salvation. 
That's significant. The message of forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation of abundant life here and now and eternal life with God in heaven. Do you know what that is? Do you know salvation? Let's be people who proclaim salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So let's share the gospel. Let's share the gospel for it brings salvation to everyone who believes. Share the gospel. And as you do, do so knowing the Spirit of God resides in you and will remain with you and will soon take you home. Share the gospel until kingdom comes. Share the gospel. Toxie, share the gospel. Tarina, share the gospel. Mark, share the gospel. Sam, share the gospel. Debbie, share the gospel. Pam, share the gospel. Wanda, share the gospel. Frank, share the gospel. Let's be people who share the gospel. Let's be a church who takes this message to heart and shares the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord until he comes again. Amen. Let's share the gospel. Would you bow with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.